It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Something's Not Right is primarily listener funded. If you enjoy our show and would like to help us offset research and production costs, please consider becoming a Something's Not Right Patreon subscriber. Among the perks available to donors at all levels are bonus episodes and stickers. If you're not ready for that kind of commitment, but you want to help us get some Goo Goo Clusters and Moon Pies, we also have a PayPal account for one-time donations. For links to both of these, please visit notrightpodcast.net and click the Support Us tab. Hello and welcome to Something's Not Right. I'm Olivia. And I'm Tashana. A quick note before we get started. As most of you have probably heard, Middle Tennessee was hit hard by a tornado last week. Our hometown, Nashville, suffered extensive damage. Even if you're nowhere near us, you can still help with recovery efforts by donating to the Community Foundation of Middle Tennessee at cmft.org or Gideon's Army at DonorBox.org slash Gideon's Army. We'll include links to both of these in our show notes and on our website. So this episode is a little bit different from others. There's no murder. There is a connection to Tennessee, though it's tenuous. But it does involve three pretty great topics. Alt-country, national parks, and body snatching. We'll get right into it after the break. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A quick word of warning, which is different from any of our usual warnings, is that the first half of this episode is going to be pretty heavy on some music history. Some of you will be into that. Some of you did not come here for that. You're here for crime. If you're not into that, I want to encourage you to just be patient and stick with it because There is one hell of a story that this is leading up to, and you're going to want to hear it. Plus, there's a lot of interesting trivia in the musical history portion of this episode. Let's get right into it. Ingram Cecil Connor III was born November 5th, 1946, in Winter Haven, Florida, 
to Ingram Connor II, known as Coondog, and his wife Avis. The couple lived in Waycross, Georgia, but Avis wanted to give birth in her hometown, so she delivered her firstborn more than 250 miles from home. Coondog was a celebrated World War II flying ace, recipient of the Air Cross, and present at the attack on Pearl Harbor. Avis's father, John Snively, was a citrus fruit magnate whose Snively groves at one time provided more than one-third of the Florida citrus crop. He was an original inductee in the Florida Citrus Hall of Fame, which is apparently a thing that exists, and the family home was later sold to the Cypress Gardens theme park, which is now part of Legoland. Biographer David Meyer said the Connors were loving and affectionate, but both were alcoholics and Avis suffered from depression. Like many kids growing up in the late 50s and 60s, little Ingram became enamored with early rock and roll. He saw Elvis in concert in Waycross in 1956. Though there was love in the family, his parents' addiction and mental illness made life unstable. Two days before Christmas 1958, Coondog died by suicide. Avis then married a man named Robert Parsons, an owner of multiple clubs in central Florida, who adopted Ingram and his younger sister, also named Avis. They took his name, and Ingram began going by a shortened version of his first name. He was now Graham Parsons. Graham attended the Bowles School, a prestigious all-boys private high school in Jacksonville, and then transferred to Winter Haven High School. He flunked his junior year at the public school, and somehow, presumably because of who his maternal grandfather was, he was allowed back into Bowles. By his teens, Graham was in numerous bands, playing rock cover songs at his stepfather's clubs before moving into folk music by the time he was 16, playing with a professional band called the Shilohs, who did a summer playing coffee houses and the like in New York City. John Phillips, later of the Mamas and the Papas, tried to get the band to deal with his manager, Albert Grossman, who balked when he learned that the band were high school students. The day of his graduation from Bowles in 1965, Parsons' mother died of cirrhosis of the liver after years of alcohol abuse, which increased when she learned Robert was having an affair. Graham left the Shilohs due to creative differences, as the band was torn apart by the growth of folk rock, which emerged as a distinct genre, particularly after Bob Dylan's electrified performance at the Newport Folk Festival in 1965. Somehow, despite being a poor student with so-so grades and test scores, Parsons was admitted to Harvard because of his admissions essay. He dropped out after one semester, rarely attending class. But something important did happen during his time in Cambridge. Though he was a Georgia boy, Parsons had never really taken to country music. But while at Harvard, he heard Merle Haggard's debut album, Strangers. After dropping out of college, Parsons and a group of other Boston-area folk musicians formed the International Submarine Band, which relocated to New York City and then Los Angeles. ISB moved to L.A. in part because their friend, Brandon DeWild, a child star best known for his role in 1953's weepy western Shane, said he could get them roles in films. DeWild introduced Parsons to Peter Fonda, who convinced Roger Corman to put the band in his movie The Trip, though a song they wrote for the film was axed. 
In late 1967, Michael Clark and David Crosby left the Birds. Parsons had struck up a friendship with the band's bassist after having met him at a bank and had once stolen David Crosby's girlfriend. Parsons auditioned and got a job initially as a pianist, but he moved to rhythm guitar and vocals. Technically and legally, Parsons was not a member of the band. He was paid as a sideman, which meant he was on salary. According to the other birds, it was the only way they could get him to show up. On the birds' seminal 1968 album, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, which was partially recorded on Music Row here in Nashville, Parsons contributed the songs Hickory Wind and 100 Years From Now. In the summer of 1968, Parsons became friends with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. I don't think I need to explain who they are. At the same time, the Birds were planning a tour of South Africa. Parsons, who was largely apolitical, said he wouldn't go as he was opposed to apartheid and left the band. Parsons briefly lived with Jagger and Richards, with Graham considered responsible for reigniting Richards' interest in country music. Parsons once said, Mick Jagger knows an awful lot about country music. Whether it was Parsons' influence or not, the Stones did take more of a foray into countryfied rock in the early 70s with songs like Dead Flowers on 1971's Sticky Fingers. In 1969, Graham moved back to L.A., where he reconnected with Chris Hillman, the Bird's bassist. The pair, along with session man Sneaky Pete Kleino and Graham's former international submarine band bandmate Chris Etheridge, formed the Flying Burrito Brothers. The band recorded The Gilded Palace of Sin, which is one of the best album names ever, in 1969, with the cover debuting their signature look, nudie suits bedazzled with pictures of marijuana plants and various pharmaceuticals. The band went on a cross-country tour by train, as Graham feared flying, ironic given his father's history as a fighter pilot, and frankly, they did a lot of drugs. Graham's favorites were mushrooms and cocaine. The tour included an opening slot for the birds in Philadelphia, where Parsons sang Hickory Wind and 100 Years From Now with the group, and with both groups joining together to perform Long Black Veil. The Rolling Stones moved to America during this time to finish recording Let It Bleed and spent a lot of time partying with Parsons, who was really ramping up the drug use. Still, the friendship with the Glimmer Twins paid off as the burritos were given a plum spot at the Altamont Music Festival. The festival is infamous for its sinister atmosphere, fueled by the Hells Angels hired to be security and paid in beer. One of the angels stabbed and killed 18-year-old Meredith Hunter, who had climbed on stage and drawn a pistol. However, Stone's biographer Michael Stoddard notes the calmest the crowd was that day was during the burritos set, as seen in the concert film documentary Gimme Shelter. Coincidentally, Parsons wasn't around by the time the situation deteriorated completely, as he'd hopped on a helicopter in an attempt to seduce Michelle Phillips from the Mamas and the Papas. The burritos had hit a creative wall, with Hillman later blaming the malaise on the fact that Parsons didn't have to work for a living. When he turned 21 in 1966, he was given access to an ample trust fund, receiving $30,000 per year, which would be about $210,000 in 2020 money. 
the Burrito's second album, Burrito Deluxe, was a commercial failure just as Gilded Palace was and was not as critically beloved as its predecessor. It is notable, however, for featuring the first released recording of Wild Horses, which the Stones would not release until 1971. Parsons signed a solo deal with A&M Records in 1970, but recording stalled in large part due to Parsons' drug use. He followed the Stones on tour in 1971 in an effort to get a deal with their new record label. He eventually moved in with Keith Richards, who said during this time that Parsons was frequently incapacitated. Think for a moment how bad off you have to be for Keith Richards of all people to say something like that. Also, Parsons was constantly arguing with his girlfriend Gretchen Burrell. Eventually, Anita Pallenberg, Keith Richards' longtime girlfriend, asked Parsons and Burrell to leave. Though Richards has speculated it was at the behest of Jagger, who was worried about all the time Richards was spending playing music with Parsons. Graham and Gretchen were married in New Orleans in 1971. Around that time, his former bandmate, Chris Hellman, urged him to go to a club in Washington, D.C. to see Emmylou Harris play. Graham and Emmylou became fast friends, and in 1972, he asked her to join him in L.A. as he recorded his solo record, GP, for reprise. Parsons hired Elvis's TCB band, and took Harris on the road for a tour, playing under the name Graham Parsons and the Fallen Angels. Parsons began recording his second solo album, Grievous Angel, at this time, but his personal life was falling apart. In the summer of 1973, his home burned down, the fire sparked by a cigarette. This drove the final nail in the coffin of his friendship with Gretchen, and the pair separated. Parsons moved into a spare bedroom in the home of friend and road manager Phil Kaufman and began hanging out with Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. Also that summer, Graham's friend and occasional Birds member Clarence White was hit and killed by a drunk driver while loading equipment into his car. It was at White's funeral that Parsons told Kaufman of his final wishes. Since moving to California in the late 60s, Parsons had fallen in love with Joshua Tree National Park. He'd frequently drive to the stark landscape of the park, about 130 miles east of L.A., and take drugs. He also regaled his friends with stories of all the UFOs he saw. He so loved the place that those final wishes he told to Kaufman involved cremation in Joshua Tree. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Parsons was scheduled to hit the road for a tour in October 1973, so he planned a trip to Joshua Tree for the week beginning Monday, September 17, 1973. Joining him on the trip were personal assistant Michael Martin and Martin's girlfriend Dale McElroy, 
along with Margaret Fisher, a high school flame with whom Parsons had rekindled a romance after breaking up with Gretchen. Graham and Gretchen were not yet divorced officially, but Kaufman claims that Parsons' attorney planned to serve her with divorce papers on September 20th. The quartet stayed at the Joshua Tree Inn, Room 8. At night, the group would drive to nearby Yucca Valley to drink and hang out in bars. Parsons occasionally sat in with the bands that were playing. Late in the night, Parsons would wander into the desert. Parsons had scaled back his heroin use with help from a doctor associated with the Rolling Stones after a remedy suggested by William Burroughs didn't work. Shocking, I know. By the time he began recording sessions for Grievous Angel, he'd practically kicked the habit, but his use ramped up the longer the sessions went. On this particular trip, Parsons, Martin, and Fisher drank and used various barbiturates heavily. On September 18th, Martin drove back to L.A. to get more marijuana. Parsons and the women went to the bar, and Graham urged them to drink with him, but Fisher didn't like the taste of alcohol, and McElroy was recovering from hepatitis. I'll drink for the three of us, Parsons declared before downing three double tequilas. The trio returned to the hotel, and Parsons bought morphine from a young woman who has never been identified. She went into room eight and injected him. He overdosed. Fisher attempted to revive Parsons, first by giving him an ice cube suppository, which is exactly what it sounds like. Packing someone in ice, giving them an ice cube suppository, or placing ice on their genitals is a common, but doctors say completely ineffective, treatment for an overdose. Sticking with this theme, Fisher threw Parsons into a cold shower put him to bed, and then left to buy coffee with McElroy staying behind to keep an eye on him. Parsons' breathing became ragged and then stopped. McElroy attempted resuscitation to no avail. Eventually, Fisher returned and the women called an ambulance, but it was too late. Graham Parsons was pronounced dead at 12.15 a.m. September 19, 1973, at High Desert Memorial Hospital in Yucca Valley. He was 26. The initial cause of death was listed as natural causes pending autopsy. The autopsy was actually inconclusive for the purpose of determining the cause of death, though it notes the large amount of both alcohol and morphine in his system, a lethal combination. In fact, he had three times the amount of morphine needed to kill a regular user in his blood. It took a few days for the news of Parsons' death to trickle out to the national media, but by the time it had, it was already overshadowed by another tragic rock and roll death as Jim Croce died in a plane crash in Louisiana on September 20th. Okay, now it gets weird. After the ambulance took Parsons away, Fisher cleared the room of drugs and called Kaufman, who drove from L.A., Kaufman made sure Parsons' Jaguar was free of drugs and then drove Fisher and McElroy back to Los Angeles in an effort to evade the police. Remembering Parsons' final wishes, Kaufman called the San Bernardino County Coroner's Office and learned the body was being transferred to Los Angeles International Airport and possession would be taken by Western Airlines. He then called the airline, who told him the body was to be flown to New Orleans. 
It's uncertain, but some sources say that Parsons' stepfather, Bob, stood to inherit Graham's trust fund, but only if he could prove that Graham was a legal resident of Louisiana at the time of his death, thus the rush to have him buried there. In any case, Kaufman was going to fulfill Graham's last wishes. Well, as luck would have it, Dale McElroy owned a 1953 Cadillac hearse, so Kaufman and Michael Martin borrowed the car and headed to the Western Airlines hangar at LAX. They told the Western Airlines cargo manager that they worked in a funeral home, thus the hearse, and that there had been a last-minute change of plans. Instead of flying commercial to New Orleans, Parsons' family, they claimed, had arranged a charter flight from an airport in Van Nuys. The cargo manager was unable to find the transfer paperwork, obviously because it didn't exist, but bought the story and allowed Kaufman and Martin to take the body. Kaufman signed the transfer slip, Jeremy Nobody. Meanwhile, a patrolman had parked behind the hearse and Kaufman asked the officer to move his car so he could load up the casket. Kaufman and Martin, not being actual funeral home employees, had trouble with the casket but the officer helped them get it into the car. Kaufman then ran the car into the side of the hangar, but still, the policeman didn't think anything was suspicious. With Parsons' body in the back, Kaufman and Martin sped into the desert. Oh, and they were drunk. The two managed to get to Joshua Tree, pulled the casket as close to Cap Rock as they could, and opened it up. Kaufman poured in five gallons of gasoline he'd bought along the way, tossed in a match, and set the body on fire, causing a massive fireball to shoot into the sky. Their work done, Kaufman and Martin decided to head back to L.A. While making the drive, they decided to pull over and sleep it off. When they woke up, the hearse wouldn't start, so Kaufman hiked to a nearby mechanic and fixed up the car and again headed back to L.A., on the way, though, they were in a pileup in which they rear-ended another car. The responding policeman saw beer cans fall out of the door when he arrived and put both men in handcuffs and then checked the other cars to make sure no one was hurt. As he was doing that, Martin was able to slip his cuffs. He hopped back in the hearse along with Kaufman and fled. The police officer never looked at either of the men's licenses and was unable to identify them. Meanwhile, back in Joshua Tree, campers had noticed the fire and alerted rangers, who found the remaining 35 pounds of Parsons' body in a green Western Airlines body bag. Campers reported that they'd seen a hearse speed away from the scene earlier, forcing people off the road. Investigator Joe Hamilton of LAPD's Venice Division told the Van Nuys News that he had two witnesses at the airport who saw two men take the casket and leave in a black hearse, along with a partial license plate number. Using that, they were able to trace the car to Dale McElroy and then connect McElroy and Kaufman and Martin, who were identified by witnesses both from the airport and Joshua Tree with mugshots. The men were arrested, but there was no law against stealing a body, which has no monetary value. Therefore, they were charged with grand larceny for the casket. Both Kaufman and Martin were each given 30 days suspended sentence and a $300 fine. 
they were also ordered to pay $708 to pay for Parsons' funeral and burial. What remained of his remains are buried in the Garden of Memories Cemetery in Metairie, Louisiana. His family denied knowing of any wish of Graham's to be cremated in the desert and claimed it was all a publicity stunt by Kaufman. Kaufman and Martin threw a party, Kaufman's Coffin Caper concert, to pay off the fine. Grievous Angel was released to critical acclaim in 1974. People still visit Room 8 at Joshua Tree Inn and leave tributes to Parsons at Cap Rock. Some of these tributes are in the form of graffiti, a problem throughout Joshua Tree, and rangers are urged to remind visitors that Cap Rock is a Native American cultural site. The story of his cremation is not included in any official literature, though rangers are given the option of telling the story on tour, particularly if they are asked about it, which they are, frequently. If you're interested in hearing some of Graham Parsons' music, I've included links in the show notes on our website at notrightpodcast.net. Sin City on the Gilded Palace of Sin is probably my favorite. This isn't really quite the end of this story for us. There was a film adaptation of this story that kind of loosely follows what really happened, starring Johnny Knoxville. And our next episode is going to be some commentary from Tashana on that. It's called Grand Theft Parsons, and I hope you will enjoy it. We need your help. We want to go to CrimeCon to represent Something's Not Right in Flat Rock this summer, but the organizers aren't going to invite us unless a lot of people tell them they want to see us there. So we're asking you to go to our website and click the link to fill out CrimeCon's quick five-question survey to let them know that you want to see Something's Not Right in Flat Rock there. Let them know that they're getting two shows for the price of one. The link is at the top of our main page, and we really appreciate your help. We'd like to get more exposure for the Kathy Jones case, as well as the many other lesser-known cases we've covered. Thank you, as always, to our patrons, Justin from Mysterious Circumstances, Audrey Arndt, Hope Brazel, Patton Fuquay, Allison Klima, Astrid Nyer, Kathy Lind, Janet Logan, and Terry Quillen. Bye, guys. Bye! Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.